scripture reading today is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 14, and you can find this on page 222 of your pew Bibles. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to them, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man, and this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken your way your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. May God bless the reading of his word. I was talking with a few of the Bible study leaders this week, and they mentioned that uh, you know, we're in the, this is the 23rd sermon in a series. And they said, we're, you know, we're starting to lose track, particularly the last few sermons, and, and how they fit in with the whole series. So if you're a visitor here, or you don't come regularly, give me two or three minutes, because I'm going to talk to the people who do come regularly, and the Bible study leaders, and so forth. I'm actually not going to answer that question this week. But I will at least introduce the question. I'll answer it next week. So come back next week. What do they call it? Anyway. But at least what I want to show you, give you an idea, is to review where we've been, uh, where we're going. And, and how a little bit about how this fits in. So basically what we've been looking at is... Uh, what we're doing in a 23-week 20 series, who knows how many it's going to be, 40, 45, you know, what is the Bible all about? The whole overview, the meta-narrative, the big story from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And you really only need to grasp 
three basic ideas to understand what the Bible's about from the beginning to the end. You know, and what happens is we read these little passages like looking at the trees, you know. We read a little passage and we don't have any idea where it plugs into this big story. So what we're doing is we're taking these three ideas and then scoping out all of the Bible to explain how it fits in together with these three ideas. Now the first idea is that this world is, we know intuitively, this world is not the way it's meant to be. There is something fundamentally wrong with this world. And you don't have to be a Christian to know this. Everybody senses that life is, we want more, we expect more. And the Bible says, yeah, we're right to expect more. And we're not going to get it yet. There is this disconnect. Whether we look at our, at our jobs, whether we look at our hobbies, whether we look at our marriages and our families. You know, we have these great dreams and great ambitions and great hopes. And, and often, not always, you know, there's good there. But so often disappointing. And the first concept in Scripture, the first three chapters of the Bible set this out. God designed creation to be wonderful. And the constant word keeps coming back as he describes anything new he created. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good, it's very good. And then the fall. And you really could look at creation and say, that, well, there's three blessings there. And then in the fall, each one of those three blessings suffers. And so you have the, the creation and fall is the first idea. And then you've got a restoration, a promise that God's going to make things right. And still, it's in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. The first part of the story was Genesis 1 to 3. The second part of the story, Genesis 12. God makes three promises. And God promises to take those three things that were good about creation and those three things that were corrupted by the fall. And God promises to make them good again in a process of restoration. And he begins slowly but surely, one at a time, he handles, he addresses those three problems and those three solutions. And he brings, he promises descendants to Israel to take up what was lost by the fall. He promises land to Israel to replace what was lost by the fall. And then he promises that this won't be just Israel, this will be all nations. And he promises to bring that blessing from Israel to all the nations. And then the only other idea in the all of Scripture the only other major idea is reciprocation. God says that it's kind of like a marriage. He says, I'm doing all these kind and gracious things for you. But it's because we're in a relationship. And he says, he calls us to respond to his love. To respond in worship and obedience. And, and God all, shows all this grace. And then he says, if you want this relationship to persist, to continue, then reciprocate. Worship me and obey and you can go anywhere in the Bible, from the beginning to the end and every piece in between, and it all fits into this scheme of three main ideas and with the three subordinate ideas. So the question that people asked me about this week was, uh, we've been looking at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Well, we've done first, we're finishing First and Second Samuel. We're starting First and Second Kings. We've been looking a lot about politics, and they ask, well, how does all that politics fit into this salvation history? How does it fit into creation, fall, restoration, reciprocation? That's what we'll look at next week. How does all this stuff we've been talking about for the last, say, six weeks, how does it fit into the stuff we've been talking about for the first 27 weeks?
But I want to show you why we're not going to talk about it today. You see, all of the stuff about politics, everything in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, like everything else in the Bible, fits into the schema on the right, my left. It all fits into that salvation history schema. But do you really want a year of sermons? Do you want 40 sermons on the same idea? I mean, make my life really easy. All I have to do is change the Bible reading and keep saying the same thing every week. So in addition to looking for the salvation history theme, each one of these passages we've been looking at also has specific applications or specific topics that it deals with. And so first and second, first um, Samuel 1 to 7 talks about Samuel. And it fits into the salvation history scheme, but it also tells us something about politics. And, and first Samuel 8 to 15 tells us about uh, Saul. But it, but it also fits into the salvation history scheme. But because I don't want to, you know, not, not the same thing every week, then we looked at the specific point of 1 to 7, the specific point of 8 to 15, specific point of 16 to 31, and the specific point of uh, 1 to 10. And then we're going to look today at the specific point of 2 Samuel, uh, gee, 11 to 24, or is it 12 to 24? So we're going to look at the specific point today from this passage. And then come back next week. And we'll look at how all five of these passages fit into salvation history. And then we're going to go into First and Second Kings and, and look more at some of the political, national, civic life of Israel. And then by the time we end that, we'll go back again and say, how does it all fit into salvation history? But today, Second Samuel 11 to 24, or 12 to 24, whatever, it makes a point, an individual point, that does fit into salvation history. But it makes an important point that's worth our attention this morning. So if you're a visitor, you don't come regular, now's the time to start paying attention again. Let's take a look at what the point is of 2 Samuel 11 to 24. I obviously edited it in, in well anyway. 2 Samuel. Oh, we'll skip this. We, that's what we'll see in weeks to come. 2 Samuel 12 to 21, 11 to 24, don't worry about it. One of the very dumbest things you can do. I was inclined to say the very dumbest thing you can do, but there's a lot of competition for that item. And there may be at least one dumber thing you can do than what uh, David does in this today's passage. But you've got to know that there's a lot of fun you can have. I mean, this is a fun sermon to research. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. Okay. Some of examples of some of the things that aren't the dumbest. When my kids were young, among their buddies, they had a way. You know, you've seen this. A lot of guys, are you, most of the dumb things are done by guys. Many of them by teen guys. Uh, so there's a way of testing whether a 9-volt battery is strong enough to, 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 do, to, to do the job, Right? Is there a guy in this congregation that doesn't know how to test a 9-volt battery? <laughs> Using your tongue, exactly. you got to use your tongue. Oh, that's a treat. And, you know, there was a website that tells you, first of all, you got to calibrate your tongue. So you look at, you, you, first you, you touch your tongue to both terminals on a new 9-volt battery, and that'll tell you how much it should hurt. And then you do it on, a, on, the, on the battery in question, and, and then you can gauge from how much it should hurt and how much it does hurt, and then you know. 
a former attender, a former member of our worship team from this church and then moved back to Denver, Colorado for his job, he got an invitation to go to the North Pole for some research project. And this brings up, or South Pole, I don't know, it's all the same. Anyway, <laughs> this brings up a second, you know, guys, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I, when I heard he was going to North Pole, he wrote to me an email, sent out this email, blanket email. I, I wrote back to him, and what did I say? I said, don't touch your tongue to a pole. <laughs> North Pole, tongue. And, you know, and he wrote back and said, you know, that's the very first thing I thought of myself. Imagine how you'd ever get your tongue back. One of the things I have enjoyed seeing on YouTube is dumb guys with hairy chests who get a bikini wax. And there, is, you know, and there was an internet discussion. What does it cost to get your chest waxed? And one guy wrote back, about three years of your life. Yeah, and you deserve it. Uh, there is one of my favorite recent ones I've seen. There was a guy who obviously likes yard work about as much as I do, because he had a hedge to trim, and he had an electric trimmer. So he plugged in his electric trimmer, turned it on, and then swung it around his head by the cord. And then just, you know, chopped away at the, at the hedge with the hedge trimmer. I mean, it didn't do a good job, but maybe that wasn't the point. You know? <laughs> now, I suppose there was a woman in his life, either his mother or his wife, who thought it would be a good idea for him to trim that hedge. And I suppose it was a good idea that, that use the method he used because probably they won't ever ask him to do the job again. But there you go. But these, these things are dumb, right? They're fun to watch, but they're dumb. But boy, they're not nearly the dumbest thing you can do. One of the dumbest things you can do, one of the very dumbest things you can do. Tell me what these names have in common. Elliot Spitzer, Anthony Weiner, Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Edwards, Mark Sanford, Bill Clinton, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, are there any more Kennedys? Martin Luther King Jr. What's the very, one of the very dumbest things you can do? Powerful men who risk their lives and their careers for illicit sex. Now, it's not just guys, right? There's a website, 25 female school teachers who had sex with underage school children in their schools and went to jail for it. And it's not just that. How about all, you know, when you think of uh, women who use sex as a conquest, you know, Mick Jagger, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Tiger Woods, they didn't have to rape women to have affairs. Just this week, a picture of Julian Edelman sleeping went viral. Julian Edelman, for those of you who don't care about the most important team and most important sport on earth, you know, uh, Julian Edelman playing for the uh, Patriots. I'm just joking about that other stuff. If you're from New York, I'm serious, but if you're from anywhere else, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> Julian Edelman got his picture sleeping 
Because in the foreground was a woman, half the face, and she tweeted this picture saying, I just had sex with Julian Elliman, no lie. What possesses powerful people to risk everything? What possesses women to gain nothing out of, for, uh, for the sake of illicit sex? You know, that's what this passage, today's passage, is about. Now, this is not the central point of the passage for the whole of salvation history, but boy, this passage screams, stupid, stupid, stupid. How could David possibly be so stupid to risk everything he had for Bathsheba? But the text breaks it down a little bit in more detail. The first point you can derive from this text, from 2 Samuel 11, is that adultery never just happens. You know, if you ever have opportunity, or if you ever have the misfortune that one of your friends... No, come on. Let me see. This is not just about our friends. And it's not just about powerful people, you know. It's really about probably all of us. And not just the men, but women too. Adultery never just happens. There's always a process that leads to the point of adultery. And if you have a friend or if you experience, if you commit adultery, you know, you, you'll reach a point. There's a, it seems to be you reach a point where, you, where your mind justifies and says, you know, I, I, we, we can't stop now. We're, we're just so deeply in love. Or this means just so much to me. There is a point where it's, you may reach a point where it's hard to keep it from happening. But that's not the point you start at. That, that's always a point somewhere down in the process. But you've passed a whole lot of warning signs before you ever get to that point. And if you want to stop it, you don't stop it there. You stop it way back here with these first warning signs. So take a look at David in the spring. Look at what the author's telling you, what the narrator's telling you. In the spring, chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, page probably 221. Uh, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Do you realize three times the authors told, the narrators told you the same th thing three times in this passage? When kings go off to war, King David did not go off to war. He sent his general off to war. With whom? With his men, the king's men. But David remained in Jerusalem. It's the first thing, first warning sign. This is the time when kings are supposed to go off the war. And, and David, he doesn't do that. Instead, he sends his general and his men. He remains back. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. Of course, the roofs were flat. So in the hot weather, people could, you know, no air conditioning. People would sleep outside on the roof. He, the palace is the tallest building. He stands up there on the roof. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Do you suppose he caught a quick glimpse of a woman, turned his head away, and in that fraction of a second realized that she was very beautiful? 
is it enough time available to make that decision? Or do you suppose he saw and watched? He couldn't see how beautiful she was when she was in the bath, only when she undressed to get in or got out and dressed. This guy's not just accidentally, inadvertently. This guy's leering. Then David sent someone to find out about her. Oh, yeah, that's smart. And what did he find out about her? The man says she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. And what did the man say? Told the king, she's somebody else's wife. You don't think he could have stopped then? You don't think his informant expected him to stop then? Then David sent messages to get her. Oh, yeah, let's, I, I'm going to meet her. We'll just have a conversation, right? Or, oh, yeah, maybe we'll just have lunch together. You don't think one step led to another and at some point it became inevitable? And maybe David is not solely to blame because the text, the narrator says, she came to him. Maybe she could have said, no, even if he's king, and he slept with her. There's always a process. It, and then it gets worse. Because she gets pregnant, she sends him a note, I'm pregnant. Do you think it could have stopped there? But David wants to save face, he doesn't want anyone to know, so he sends to his general and says, send her husband home. Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite, not a Jew, a pagan. Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sends to Uriah back to David, and Uriah comes in, and David acts like he just wants to know about what's going on in the war, and, and Uriah gives his report, and then he says, okay, look, you've been, go down, go down to your home and wash your feet. Now this is a euphemism, right? We, we know this, right? It's obvious. He says, look, go home and see your wife. So Uriah left the palace, and then the king sent a gift. I don't know, chocolates, flowers, a little champagne. But Uriah, this pagan soldier, had more integrity than the king, the commander-in-chief. He didn't go home. He slept in the entrance to the palace, in the doorway. He didn't go home. And David found out about it. He says, why didn't you go home? And he says, my men are in the field. What am I to be doing? going home and spending time with my wife. I won't do such a thing. As surely as you live. Don't you think that could have gotten David's attention? This guy who doesn't know Yahweh and worship God, doesn't have the Torah telling him how to live, won't engage in the sort of misconduct that, that his own king does, that David does? And so David says, okay, David takes one more try. And he says, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I'll send you back. So you remains. And then David gets him drunk. So here you've got a pagan who won't do what the king will do. Now you've got a drunk pagan who won't do what the Jewish king will do. How much worse could David get? Well, a little bit worse, right? Because some of you know the story. Uriah still, even drunk, won't go home. 
So he sends word to the general and says, well, you know, put Uriah in the front of the battle, attack the city, go up to the city limits, attack, then all the other men withdraw, Uriah will die, and that's just how things happen. So now the king has to conspire with the general to get one of his faithful soldiers killed. How can this be? And the general is worried about doing it because this is a stupid strategy, and he could get in trouble for it. So he, he writes a letter back and says, well, we did what you said, and Uriah died. It never just happens. Not for David, not for us. You know, the workplace is the most common place today, statistics show, to meet somebody that you're going to have an affair with. The workplace. And it never just happens. Right? It's a process. You start looking forward to seeing somebody at work. You start greeting them warmly with a big smile or the hair toss or whatever, or the chest, you know, the, the stomach goes in and the chest comes out. You know, and then a little bit of flirting humor. And then maybe you have to work together on a project and you hope you get assigned, you hope you get assigned to the same project. If you ever see, if you ever sense that you're hoping you get assigned to a project with somebody of another gender, it's time to resign. There's way too much at stake. You hope to work together. Then you get it together on a project. And, oh, it's late at night. You know, you've been working. You've you got to go work through the night. So you've got you to gotta take a quick break for dinner. Go grab something together. Or a quick break over lunch to grab something together. That's a date. Be honest. It's an, you know, you're justifying it. You're excusing it. It, but an affair just never happens. There's a process that leads up to it. And the place to stop it is not once the hotel room is booked and you're both inside. The place to stop it is when you start greeting each other warmly. You start telling jokes. The place to stop it is long before you ever say anything about your spouse to this other person. It never just happens. It can be stopped but often only early in the process. Look at this secondly. The price that you pay for adultery. The price we pay will be different than the price David paid, but this narrator is clear that there is a price to be paid for adultery. It'll differ from one case to another, but look at the price that David paid for his adultery. Chapter 12, <clears throat> verse 10. Uriah, no, sorry, um, Nathan sentences him to three price to be paid, three consequences. First of all, the sword will never depart from your house, God says to, to Nathan, to David, because you despised me and took the name of Uriah the Hittite, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, to be your own. The sword will never depart from your house. <clears throat> Secondly, the Lord says, verse 12, verse 11, out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in front of the whole country in broad daylight. You did it in secret with some random guy's wife. But it's your own family member who's going to do it to you in front of the whole nation. I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And his own son, David's own son, 
took his concubines and slept with them. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan gave the third sentence. The Lord has taken away your sin. The Lord has forgiven your sin. You're not going to die. But by doing this, you've shown contempt for the Lord. So the son born to you in Bathsheba is going to die. God forgave David. When David repented, God forgave him. But there is a huge price to pay. And you've got to know, from the news reports, you've got to know, or from friends who've committed adultery, you've got to know that there's always a huge price to pay from adultery. In David's case, one son of his raped a half-sister. Another son killed the rapist. David's son launches a coup and takes over his harem. David has to flee into exile. Eventually, David's son is killed. You see the chaos David brought upon his family by adultery. Now, it's unlikely that you can bring that level of national chaos by any adultery you could commit, because you're just not that, none of us is that important. But we can bring that level of chaos on our own families. I've seen, probably you've seen, the effect on the children. Well, no, let's not start there. I've seen, probably you've seen, the effect on a spouse. There is no betrayal that's deeper than this. It's not entirely rational. Maybe we can't make logical sense of it. But there is something about adultery. You know, for all the sex that Americans are willing to have with all the sorts of partners, still the majority of Americans despise adulterers. It's intuitive. The harm you'll do to a spouse, the harm you'll do to your kids, the harm you do to the name of Christ, we know. Now, sometimes it, people can get past it, but the work it takes to rebuild trust. I knew a man once who said, I know my kids are going to hate me for this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Then you deserve what you get. Thirdly, because we don't want to end on a bad note. Thirdly, and I owe this point to Megan. Thirdly, Psalm 51. You know, there is a possibility of restoration. And we're going to sing a, a chorus that comes from Psalm 51 as a response song. There is, there is a possibility. We have a strong forgiving God. You know, God forgave David. If you have, well, obviously the take home is this. If you haven't committed adultery, but are thinking about it, obviously the take home is this. You'd have to think long and hard to come up with something that's dumber to do. Right? This has got to be one of the most destructive and stupid things you can ever do. If you have committed adultery and are trying to work your way back from that, the Bible does offer hope that there is a prospect for restoration to God and to family. God may not take away the consequences, but there is a possibility, possibility, not a guarantee of forgiveness. 
And so we read in Psalm 51, a, a, a psalm that's the <clears throat> compiled over the psalms, attributes to the time when David committed adultery and Nathan confronted him. And, and David prays to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Cleanse me with hyssop, I'll be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. There is the hope, there is a prospect of forgiveness and restoration. A hope, a prospect, a possibility. Because don't be confused about this. There is not a guarantee. God is incredibly gracious and he may forgive. Your family may be gracious, and even after the suffering you put them through, they may forgive. But there is no promise, because the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ, says this repeatedly. The acts of the flesh are obvious, and they include sexual immorality. I warn you before, I warn you now, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If ever you start flirting with somebody at work, if ever you go to lunch with somebody that's not your spouse and it's really a date, read this verse to yourself and ask this. Is this person worth spending an eternity in hell for. Psalm 51 promises that we may, may possibly be forgiven. Galatians chapter 5, and repeatedly in Paul's epistles and in Jesus' teaching, they, we may be forgiven, but maybe we won't. So before we do something stupid, maybe it's worth asking this. Is it worth taking this risk? In conclusion, let me be really concrete. Men, watch out for your 40s. This, you know, we read a lot, I and mean, it's not the only time in your life maybe, but we read about, a lot about midlife crisis, and we kind of get used to it, and we kind of blow it off, and we kind of laugh at it, and some of it's going to happen to me. Men in your 40s, I don't know what it is. Developmental psychology, whatever it is. Men, watch out for your 40s. Have somebody looking over your shoulder. And not your spouse. She doesn't need the anxiety. Women. Not so much a problem as men, but women. Women in your 30s. Watch out. 
the statistics show that if men are going to have affairs, it very commonly happens in the 40s. If women are going to have affairs, it very commonly happens in the 30s. And, and there's a reason for that. Men always, men prefer, at any age, men prefer, are attracted with the women in their 20s. So women know if they're going to get it on, they've got to get it on before they get too much older. Women are a lot more virtuous. They're attracted to anybody of their own age. Whatever age they are, they typically are attracted to women of the, men of their own age. And so men can have affairs at any age with, if they're willing to go with a woman their age. But if the men want the women to be young. So if women want to have affairs, they've got to do it while they're young. Men can have affairs at any age. And don't worry about it, the, the statistics. The point of it is this. If you're in your 30s, women, men, if you're in your 40s, figure out, you know it's likely... The temptation is likely going to come at some point. If you know it's going to come, you can take some kind of preventive measures, have them in place. Because you know it extracts a huge price. And it's a price that you will one day regret if you have to pay it. Let's pray together. Father, we look at David, whom even you said you chose to be king because he had your heart. And you don't look on the externals, you look at the heart, and David had that heart. And yet he did something so incredibly stupid. Father, we know that it may not be within our intention now, but it's certainly within our capability. Father, put people in our lives that will protect our hearts that we will not inflict this sort of damage on your name and on those who love us. Work in our hearts through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.